Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Toldot, that's history. The address is Breshit, Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, through chapter 28, verse 9. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. This particular written commentary was updated on November 26th of 2005. All quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible, Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications, Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai Lotein HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Ele Toldot. Here's the history of, or here are the generations of. That's how the Hebrew starts for this particular parasha. Ele Toldot. Toldot is a word uh, that connotes um, progeny or offspring. And when we're talking about um, time, we usually say history. That is to say the history of people, the generations of families. And of course, these opening few words dot the beginnings of just a handful of significant chapters in the Torah. Um, to be sure, there are ten significant instances in the book of Breshit alone that use the word toldot, which stems from the root word used for birth or offspring, the Hebrew word toldot. We read about the history of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2-4, the history of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 9. And in chapter 10, verse 1, it talks about the history of Noah. So, the history, the generations of, the offsprings of, of families and people. Up to this point, the selection might appear rather random, that is to say, without pursuing a single family lineage. But... As we're going to see, God begins to narrow things now as we're focusing on Abraham and his offspring. In fact, after Noah, the Torah specifically begins to narrow down its selection of historical perspectives, singling out the significant person that is most pertinent for the reader's study. So we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and, uh, and then his twelve sons, and then eventually we start singling out some of the sons as well. So... I've made a note in my commentary here that after Noah's listing in Bereshit 10, 1, the Torah begins the pattern of tracing the lineage of a specific family history, 
highlighting the offspring of a specific man in particular. Let's notice the pattern, okay? We've got Shem's history is the highlight of Bereshit 11.10. Shem, of course, was one of the sons of Noach. Shem, Ham, and Yafet. And then we have Tarach's history. And Tarach is Avram's father. And we find his story in 11.27 of Genesis. And then we have Yishmael's history, Avram's first son of chapter 25 and verse 12. And then we have Yitzhak's history, uh, Isaac. Yitzhak is, of course, the covenant son uh, Yishmael was the first son, but Yitzchak is the covenant son, and he's the um, also the son according to promise. And his story begins in chapter 25, verse 19, which is, of course, the beginning of our current parasha entitled Toldot. So that's, we're really poised to start talking about um, Yitzchak. Later on, we'll pick up the familiar pattern again with Esav, which is Yitzchak's first son and his offspring in chapter 36, verse 1 and 9. And then finally, we'll read about the history of Yaakov, who goes on to become the inheritor of the covenantal promises in Bereshit chapter 37, verse 2. So what we're seeing here, I want you, the student, um, drink of water there. Uh, I want you, the student, to notice that the Torah is masterfully guiding us into the place where we'll begin to have the understanding that Hashem wants us to have. As interesting as it might be to try and figure out all the other side stories and the back stories and, and the details that aren't given to us, um, God is directing the show. And in His direction, He takes us to the places where we need to go. And the stories that have been preserved for us by Moshe, of course, are the stories that Hashem wanted us to uh, take into our own very lives and to learn from and to gain insight from. This understanding is comprised of what I call the majors of the majors of Torah and the minors of the minors of the Torah. And you can That's a reference to my previous commentary, the Parashat Lech Lecha, uh, the third paragraph, paragraph for reference. I know it's, it's uh, in fact been um, tradition, in, in the, at least in the Jewish community, to fill in the backstory with the Midrash and with the Agadah and with the, the various legends and stories and such. But really, if you think about it, the Word of God gives us just enough information so that we can become the covenant people that we are called to be. And so there's no excuse for us not to have um, the information there. So, In my commentary, since the topic here is history... I want to take this opportunity to briefly recap the highlights of the Torah narrative up to this point, because I believe that taking a look back at where we've gone will um, help prepare us, us to where we're going, and that I, I'm going to make mention of that more later on in my commentary, but that's why I'm using this historical overview, so to say. I've decided to stop at this fifth, um, or rather at this uh, point in my uh, uh, studies, to, uh, to t stop and get an overview. And this is helpful for, the, for those people who may be just joining us. Um, you just may be now tuning into the podcast or you've just subscribed to the commentaries and you haven't really had a chance to go back and study um, all the commentaries in Breshit up to this point. It might be helpful just to get a snapshot of the book so far. So enjoy this opportunity. Moreover, since the Torah is comprised of the first five books of Moshe, uh, this is an opportune moment to refresh the reader's understanding of the first five parashot of the book of Breshit. So um, what I'm going to do is use small quotes from my previous commentaries 
as a guidance tool, bringing the readers up to the current portion of Toldot. Okay, you ready? Here we go. In the first paragraph on page two, this is an overview of Parashat Breshit, which covered chapters 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. Here's the overview. Quote from my uh, uh, previous commentary. Beginning with Hashem changes our viewpoint from that of scientific observation to one of absolute faith grounded in the Word of God. In fact, I went on to mention that a scientist who refuses to objectively deal with a supernatural creation is, in fact, a scientist who refuses to deal with a supernatural God. You ever notice that uh, correlation? The modern scientists and, and those who study uh, in the scientific fields today who refuse to recognize that God is the creator of all are those who are really deep down inside refusing to recognize um, I'm sorry, those who refuse to recognize a supernatural creation are really those same uh, scientists who are refusing to recognize a supernatural God. And it's because, in my next paragraph I state, because by removing God from the equation, mankind effectively dulls his own conscience toward the responsibility of his own actions, good or bad. That is to say, if there's no God, then ultimately there's no need to answer to anyone but myself. And in that way... The Torah teaches that mankind ultimately destroys himself, and the Torah goes on to call him a fool. You know that that uh, familiar verse, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's a shame. My commentary goes on to note that the mercy of the Holy One offers us an authoritative historical, and there's my key word, I'm going to use key words throughout these, um, these uh, references. Historical is my key word there. Uh... The Holy One offers us an historical beginning complete with purpose and structure for our lives. When God begins something, its destined purpose, that is to say its history, there's my marker again, its history is made sure. End quote from Parashat Barishit. Okay, the next overview or the next um, snapshot was taken from Parashat Noach, which is the next portion in sequence. It covers Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 through chapter 11, verse 32. Here's the quote. Again, as you're listening to the um, podcast here, listen for the marker or the uh, correlation between all of the rest. My theme here is history. The Torah portion for today is called Tuldot, which means history or generations or offspring. So listen for words related to that offspring, history, lineage, things like that, okay? That's the... Um, uh, 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 the literary marker between all of these references. Here is my quote from Parashat Noach. Quote, The condition that mankind found himself in during those days just prior to the world deluge is very similar, in my opinion, to that of mankind in our current time period. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that, as you read through the pages of um, of Noah and him building the ark, that mankind was just marrying, giving into marriage, just going about his merry way, not really knowing or even caring that the end of the world was that close. Yet here's Noah faithfully building an ark according to the command of the, wor uh, the word of the Lord and the command to do so. And really his building of the ark, if we, uh, this isn't in the written commentary, this is just in the, uh, this is just my own comment. The, the, the building of the ark really was an act of mercy on God's part. He was saying, look, I'm not asking you all to build the ark. I'm just asking you to get into the ark. I'm making opportunity for you to save your very lives from the destruction that's going to befall all mankind. And yet no one listened. 
we know as we read through the story that it was just Noach, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, and of course the animals that Noach saved. So going back to the written commentary, knowing that history, there's our marker again, there's our link, knowing that history can be our best teacher sometimes, do you, the listeners today, do you suppose that we should have learned our lesson the first time? I think we should have, and yet... I know that we're not going to. Mankind, as the Torah predicts this time in, say, the apostolic scriptures, I'm thinking specifically in Matthew chapter 24, when the Olivet Discourse is given by our Master Yeshua, and he says that so shall it be in the days of, of the second coming of, his, of, of himself, as it was in the days of Noah. And that is to say, men just marrying and giving in marriage and going about their merry business, not realizing that this time again the destruction of mankind is very near. Except, by comparison, God won't destroy the world by water. He's promised never to do that again. Rather, this time, the world will be destroyed by fire. Going back to my commentary, I believe we should have learned a lesson. However, since we did not... The Torah has decidedly promised that in the days of the second coming of the Messiah, that mankind would once again find himself in a state of such depravity that Hashem will have no choice but to render judgment again. And that again is a merciful God. So that's the end quote from Parashat Noach. Let's move on to an overview of Parashat Lecha. And that covered Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 through chapter 17 verse 27. Here's the quote. Because of the example that the Torah records Avram to have been, any man willing to do so is eligible to become an heir of this great father. Let me just pause and add Abraham's family was always open for those who were willing to place their trust in the same invisible God that Abraham trusted in as well. And the paradigm is set by the foreigners who are grafted into Abraham's family down through the uh, pages of the Torah, the sojourners who found their way into Israel and joined Israel's God. This, these are the forerunners to the Gentiles that we find in the book of Acts joining the, 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 the kehilat, the community, the kahal, the the ecclesia, the, the church, for lack of a better uh, explanation. These Gentiles that became part of the community, um, they are foreshadowed in the foreigners who joined Abraham's family um, earlier on. And so we see, going back to my written commentary, because of Avram's trusting faithfulness uh, to Hashem's command, he subsequently became the father of the many righteous followers, both Jew and Gentile, I might add, that would come after him. And we know from reading the Apostle Paul that this is exactly what happened. Abraham becomes the exemplar. He becomes the model of what a Jew and or a Gentile should look like in God's economy. Trusting faithfulness in the word of Hashem. And last but certainly not least, my commentary goes on to state, because of Avram's trusting faithfulness, a single righteous man was born into his lineage. There's our link, our lineage there, our, our, our um, uh, buzzword to this commentary to Toldot. Uh, a single righteous man was born into Avram's lineage. From this single righteous man, of course we're talking about Yeshua, came the power of to join the physical and or spiritual family of the creator of all men. Because of Abraham's example to us, and because of 
bringing Yeshua into the world through his loins. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would give him a son. And the shadow of that promised son is Isaac. But the type, the fulfillment, the fullness is Yeshua himself. He is the ultimate son of Abraham. And quite uh, uh, honestly, he's the ultimate son of promise. And it's because of Abraham's faith in the word of the Lord that Abraham brought forth Yeshua, so to say, because he trusted in God to bring about the promise through incredible, really unbelievable odds. And now because of Yeshua, we are blessed like faithful Abraham and we are brought into the family. So that's the end of the quote from Parashat Lechacha. Let's move on to the overview of Parashat Vayera. And this covered Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 24. Quote from my commentary. What makes Avraham such a great role model of faith is that not only did he trust in the word of Hashem, that alone, that in and alone is, is, is a great example to follow, but also because of Abraham's faithfulness, God himself saw into his future and predicted that his offspring, there's our buzzword, offspring, linking us to the, the, the parashat toldot, his offspring would also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. God looked into Abraham's future and saw that Abraham was going to teach his members, his family members after him, his children after him, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's Genesis chapter 18 there. So the lesson for us, as I continue in my commentary here, is that we must, like faithful Avraham, we Jews and Gentiles, we must trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given us through Yeshua, our Messiah. Multiple promises given to us. I don't even have to name them. And yet we must exercise the same kind of trust that Avraham did. And what kind of trust was that? It's an active trust. And that's why I use the phrase trusting faithfulness. Because I'm trying to emphasize both the 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 hearts grabbing a hold and the mind locking on to that which God has said. But at the same time, God expects of us faithfulness. That is to say, walking it out. And that's where the Torah comes in and helps us out. Okay, that's the end of the quote from Parashat Vayera. Let's look at an overview of last week's portion, which was Chaye Sarah. And that covered Genesis chapter 23, verse 1, through chapter 25, verse 18. Quote, With the coming of Yeshua, the ultimate son of promise, non-Jews, that is to say Gentiles, could finally share completely in the spiritual as well as the physical blessings promised to our father Avraham. And what I mean to say is that um, we always had the forerunners. We had the proselytes, or really I shouldn't call them proselytes. That's that's what the rabbis call them as they read the uh, the sojourner who made his way into Israel, ancient Israel. Israel, excuse me. But really, what I'm referring to is the one who, from the nations, who was not native-born. He was not Ezrach. And he found his way into Israel and into ancient Israel. And he joined himself to Israel's God, became part of the people of Israel. But he did not become a Jew. He was a stranger, using the Hebrew word ger there. And so we had the forerunner for that in the strangers who joined themselves to the Lord. Ruth is one. Uh, Rahab was one. Uh, these people who were not um, recognized with 
as having a traceable um, lineage to Jacob, yet joining the people of Israel and becoming um, partakers in the covenants of Israel. That is to say, walking out the Torah. These people were the forerunners to the Gentile explosion in the book of Acts. And so that's what I mean by with the coming of Yeshua. It wasn't until after Yeshua came and sent his spirit and the um, messages going to Paul and to Peter and such that the Gentiles en masse, the key word is en masse, were able to join the people of Israel. Going back to my commentary, only after this time came could the mystery, the reference to mystery comes from Ephesians 3, verse 4 through verse 10, this mystery allowing the uncircumcised to be called righteous. And the reference there is to Romans chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. This mystery had to be revealed after Yeshua sent his spirit, and after the spirit's work became more expansive than he had been in the time period of the Tanakh. But at this current time in our parasha of historical making, there's my key word, historical, at this time of historical making, according to Hashem, while Gentiles were allowed into the covenant, God saw fit not to explicitly reveal how this mystery would unfold. So when I say this current time of historical making, I'm going back to Parashat Chayesara. In the time period that we're reading of Genesis right now, it's still a mystery. God is not revealing it completely to Am Yisrael, to the people of Israel, exactly how the Gentiles are going to become fellow heirs and fellow covenant members with Israel. It's still a hidden thing, yet you know it's trickling in little by little according to uh, God's workings and God's plans. So, that's our quote from Chaye Sarah. I go on to say in my commentary that when I talk about the Gentiles, and I'm, I'm making reference to the physical offspring of Israel as well as the spiritual offspring, some people take offense because I seem to ignore the Gentiles. And, and yet I'm not purposely neglecting the Gentiles of today. That is to say, the ones who are offspring, there's a link to uh, Toldot, offspring is Toldot, the ones who are offspring according to faith. Because, in fact, the Torah does have Gentiles in mind when it speaks of covenants. I don't think that the Gentiles were a side note. I really don't. If you follow my commentaries closely, and I believe a, a very careful reading of the text will reveal that the Gentiles were always within God's plan. It's right there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and through you all the nations, the Hebrew word is goyim, the plural of the singular goy, and that's where we get the word Gentile of sorts. It means non-native-born. Uh, um, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Gentiles were not a second plan or a plan B, a side note, a side thought in God's uh, plans. I believe they were right there up front. They just came at a later date than the native-born. So, in fact, I make a quote from Tim Haig, who asserts that the reason that Jewish lineage, there's another uh, word link again, lineage. The reason that Jewish lineage is important to God is that it's important, I should say, is be, is that God has promised to manifest his omnipotent sovereignty through the people descended, there's another word key there, descended, uh, related to Toldot, through the people descended from Jacob. And so, God makes a promise to Abraham, and it's a promise that needs to be understood first and foremost in the natural. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And I'm going to give you um, seed after you. I'm going to multiply your seed. We could call it a promise of multiplicity. How was Abraham to understand the promise? 
and the words that God was saying to him. I believe first and foremost he's to understand his promise of multiplicity to be natural children. Now we know from reading Paul that this blessing extends to the physical as well as the spiritual children. That is to say Jews and Gentiles. But first and foremost it had to make sense in the natural and so that's what I mean, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make when I say that God wanted to manifest his omnipotent sovereignty through the people descended from Jacob, the natural line of Abraham first. But in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one need not exclude the non-descendant. That is to say, today we know the non-descendant to be named Gentile. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I think Gentiles are, are, are just a neutral term, just like Jews are. But... Um, let me go back. But in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one need not exclude the non-descendant, for God has also promised to bring the nations within the scope of that same covenant. And I'm quoting from Tim Haig. Haig goes on to say, quote, God has adopted them both. God has adopted both Jew and Gentile. It is only when the Jew and the non-Jew live and worship together as equally adopted brothers in the congregation of Yeshua that God's faithfulness and power are manifested as they should be, end quote. And that's taken from Tim Haig, Fellow Heirs, FFOZ Publications, 2002, pages 40 and 41. And I like what Haig says there about that non-Jew and that Jew and non-Jew must be recognized as equals. When we when we cheapen the identity of one or the other identity, uh, one of the other people group, we do damage to the promise of the covenants that uh, God made to Abraham. Uh, it, we should not fall for the age-old racial discrimination of Jews are better than Gentiles, or conversely, Gentiles are better than Jews, or the Jews are chosen and the Gentiles are not, or conversely, the church is, is chosen and the, gen, the Jews are rejected. All of that is nonsense, people. Get it out of your head. We need to get back to the what the Torah teaches as truth, is that in Messiah, not only are both groups sinners, but in Messiah, both groups have equal covenant responsibilities, and both groups are equal, uh, re, re, uh, how should I say, equal re, recipients of the, um, of the uh, blessings promised through Messiah. And so we are equal brothers. I look at my Gentile brothers and I say, you know what, you're my equals. I'm not better than you. There's no second-class citizenship in God's congregation. There's no second-class citizenship in God's family. That's nonsense. If you are listening to this podcast today, and you're attending a Messianic congregation, and you're a Gentile, you have no uh, knowledgeable, traceable lineage to Jacob as you know it. If someone were to ask you if you were a Jew, and you would just honestly say no. Yet you have placed your faith in Messiah. You are equal to the Jewish people in every way. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, okay? If you have further questions about that, please write to me, yeshua613 at hotmail.com, and we can chat about it. I, I, I just, it, it just burns me up when I hear of, of Messianic congregations around the world, especially here in America, where Gentiles are being treated by the Jewish members as second-class citizens. I just... The righteous indignation within me just wells up, and I just want to lash out. And so, boy, sorry, don't get me started there. We'll hear more about this later on. Is in, in uh, if if you want a fuller treatment on this subject, um, log on to the website graftedin.com, navigate to the more commentary section, and download my grafted in uh, 
uh, commentary, my study there, or better yet, download my um, exegeting Galatians to get a fuller treatment of that, okay? Let's go back to my commentary. I am, however, laying the groundwork necessary for the Gentile believers to understand the foundations of the Christian faith. The Christian church sprang from Judaism. Judaism is its mother. And in my opinion, it should have never left left that house. But it's unfortunate that it did. And so we have to go back and retrace our our historical beginnings if we want to really know who we are. By addressing first the natural, we will be better equipped to understand the spiritual. And that's what I've said in several places, and I'm going to maintain that, that maxim. So... As you can see from a cursory glance of the highlighted words in the written commentary, I'll just go back and name them for you. Descended, lineage, offspring, historical, offspring, lineage, history, history, historical, and toldot. All of these have a common um, meaning, and that is offspring or toldot, the, the Hebrew word there. And I did that in a sort of a word play. But as you can see from a glance at these highlighted words, the Torah has quite a bit to teach us about history and offspring. To be sure, it has been aptly noted that, quote, a person that knows not from whence he came will be ill-equipped to properly deal with where he is going to, end quote. It's a kind of a nice little maxim, don't you think? Our current portion gives us the beginnings of the fast-paced story of two brothers. Now, the Torah is going to pick up pace here, and it gets really, really interesting. So I really, really encourage you to read the portions along with my commentaries, because then you'll really get the uh, uh, the full meat of what Hashem is trying to explain to us. We have two brothers here. We have Esav, whose name in English is Esau, but he also goes by the name Edom. And we have Yaakov, which his English name is Jacob. And what we read about is their ongoing struggle to become the men that they feel they deserve to be. There's a little bit of um, sibling rivalry going on, especially early on when Jacob and Esau um, meet over that pot of stew that we're going to read about later on in the Torah portion. It's an interesting tale, complete with deception and disappointment. Um, and then we get the women uh, getting into the uh, story there. we got Rivka, which is uh, Yitzchak's wife. She gives birth to these twins who grow to become individuals with quite opposite character traits. It really makes for a nice mini-series of some uh, Hollywood producer would like to pick up on this story, in my opinion. Um, the elder brother, Esav, is a skilled hunter. He's a rough, hairy man, and he has a flair for cooking tasty game. He winds up being favored by his father, um, Yitzchak. On the other hand, and by comparison, the younger is Yaakov. And he is described in the Torah as tender-hearted, a dweller of tents. Um, he's smooth-skinned, uh, as opposed to his brother being hairy. And Jacob is described as being quiet. And he becomes the favorite of the mother. And so, uh, you parents out there, you know, you can't help it. Sometimes you've got your favorite children among the um, group that God has given to you. And yet, in another way, sometimes we parents do damage to our children by singling out favorites because we just fuel this sibling rivalry. So, I'm not sure what lesson is there. Uh, you may want to read it and take away from it what you can. <laughs> 